This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The 119th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast gets started from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra's in New York City. We're diving right in. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. We're, this is snappy. Snappy. It, it, it feels snappy. It you say we're diving right in. Like, yeah, we're not. There's no time for pleasantries No time to waste. Today. We got too many trades to talk about. We got too many prospects going too many places. We got all kinds of good stuff. But before we get into all of it, thanks for finding the podcast, the show before the show. We're at MILB.com slash podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play now. We're on the Stitcher app as well. Wherever you find us, give us a rating and a review and a subscription. You can also get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. You can find us on Twitter. Sam is at Sam Dykes or MILB. And I am at Tyler Mon. And with that, we'll get started on Three Strikes for episode number 119. And it has been trained. Trade City around the major and minor leagues as of the last week. Since we last talked to you, these are just some of the deals that have gone down. The Chicago White Sox shipped left-hander Jose Quintana to the Chicago Cubs in exchange for outfielder Eloy Jimenez and right-handed pitcher Dylan Cease, among others. First baseman Matt Rose and shortstop Brian Fleet also went to the White Sox in that deal, but Jimenez and Cease, the big hauls there for the White Sox. Um, A deal that is a little bit off of our radar because it's not quite as prospect-packed, but Still, nonetheless, the Washington Nationals acquired Ryan Matson and Sean Doolittle from the Oakland Athletics in exchange for right-handed pitcher Blake Trinan, left-handed pitcher Jesus Luzardo, and third baseman Sheldon Noose. Just yesterday, we're recording this on Wednesday, the Arizona Diamondbacks acquired outfielder J.D. Martinez from the Detroit Tigers in exchange for three infielders, third baseman Dawal Lugo, shortstop Sergio Alcantara, and shortstop Jose King. And then another big one involving, guess who, the Chicago White Sox. This also went down on Tuesday. The New York Yankees acquired a package of three major leaguers, Todd Frazier, David Robertson, and Tommy Canley from the White Sox in exchange for Blake Rutherford, Tyler Clippard, and Ian Clark. And Blake Rutherford, a top 100 prospect, a very dynamic outfield talent. The White Sox are going to be the topic here coming up in strike two. But these three deals, Sam, taken all in a large context, we're still 12 days away from the trade deadline. Big moves all across the board. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it. I think the biggest shocker was that Quintana deal when it happened. Uh, just be, I would have loved to have talked about it last week because now it just feels like, oh, yeah, it's kind of old hat. There's so much that's happened in between. Um, but in the moment, I don't know about you, Tyler, but when it broke, it broke through the teams. Which was so there bizarre. Was no, that was one of the craziest yeah. things about it. Right. In this whole age, especially if you follow NBA free agency, everybody is, you know, there's the guys you go to in MLB. It's Ken Rosenthal, the John Heyman's, the Jeff Passons, whatever. Uh, and it was just the White Sox tweeting out, we have traded Jose Quintana to the Cubs for Eloy Jimenez, Dylan Cease and others. And you're just like, OK, this was obviously a hacked tweet. Like th- there's just that it's was so my nonchalant. exact thought. 
that was really my <laughs> thought. It came out, and I was like, eh, somebody got into the White Sox account. But then I thought, like, I don't think they'd take the time to acquire, and this is certainly nothing against uh, the two other guys in that deal, but I don't think they would take the time to figure out Matt Rose and Bryant Fleet would also be in that deal. So I was like, well, maybe this is actually real. Yeah, well, it was the follow-up tweets that made me that made me go for it. Yeah, and that's when I started writing. When I was like, "Oh, there are graphics now." Holy crap! Okay, <laughs> um, this is either a very complicated hack, or no, this really happened. Um, but yeah, so that that really just took me aback. And it actually, you know what? It makes sense on all sides. Uh, Jose Quintana, ignore the win-loss record, and you can even ignore the ERA this year. He's been better than that. Uh, he's a controllable arm. He's a very good left-handed arm. Uh, add him to the top of the mix with you know John Lester, John Lackey, and that Cubs rotation. Uh, obviously, that's what they needed. Their their lineup is stacked, even if it's kind of down right now. They're very much in that NL Central race against the Brewers, who we all kind of expect any day now to to fall off, even if they haven't done it yet. Uh, so that made sense. But you you felt like if that deal was going to happen, if anybody would have said anything about it, it was like okay, well. The Cubs, they're going to have to pay through the nose for that. And they really did. I mean, giving up Eloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease were probably their top two prospects in that system. I, I feel like I can say that pretty definitively. Uh, the Cubs system, for all that it's done and all it's created in terms of major league talent in recent years, even this year, um, those were the two guys left, really, uh, to get overly excited about. And now they ship them away for, for Quintana, and they're trying to go for a repeat World Series title and like i said he's controllable He'll, he's under contract for multiple years this is what you have to do to make this deal go I, it doesn't feel like there's an obvious winner right away um you know if quintana helps the cubs win the nl central this year um you know gets them out of that wild card game gets them into you know pitches a couple postseason games does as well as we all expect him to uh, the Cubs are going to mo- look like immediate winners, but as Tyler alluded, we'll get into the White Sox rebuild in a second. But to add a very big power arm like Cease, a guy who can hit 100 miles par- per hour, he's a little lower. He's still in Class A. Uh, he's now going to be in Class A Canapolis. But to add him and add Eloy Jimenez, who might have some of the most prodigious power you're going to find in the minor leagues uh, outside some of the higher levels, to add those guys to the mix is just that it's another coup, you know, for for Rick Hahn and that whole uh, Chicago White Sox staff. So um, that feels like it's going to be the blockbuster in terms of not only prospects, but player moves on the major league side um, last week. But, you know, teams are still moving. They're still going. You know, the trade deadline's still a week away, a uh, week plus away, excuse me. Um, so it feels like more could possibly come. But the fact that we've had four deals in just this last week since our last pod is, is certainly something uh, to get into this uh, Yankees deal that went down last night. Cause I think that's the other really major one of the ones that happened here um, to move three major leaguers like this and only get back, you know, Blake Rutherford and Ian Clark and, and Tyler Clippard, who, you know, we know is a, a major league reliever probably just needs a change of scenery uh, feels a little off to me at the, at first blush. Um, because, but you know, Frazier's only under control for this year. If that Arizona Diamondbacks JD Martinez swap with the Tigers tells us anything, it's that rentals are not going for high prices this year, no matter how valuable those guys are going to be for the ha- last half of the year. So Frazier by himself not going to get too much. Um, so that's how you have to pu- uh, pair him with a Robertson, with a, a Conley, uh, 
and those are only bullpen arms. So, you know, as valuable as the bullpen has been in recent years, they're not going to return a huge thing in themselves. Rutherford is obviously the big gem going back to the White Sox. Uh, like Tyler said, multifaceted outfielder. Uh, he went into last year's draft year as probably a better outfield prospect than Mickey Moniak. Some things happened their senior year. He kind of got passed. Uh, due to some signability concerns, I think he dropped to the Yankees, eventually signed for around $3.3 million after being the 18th overall pick. Uh, hitting 281 with a 342 OBP this year, not quite showing the power uh, that he could certainly grow into. Only two home runs this year at Class A Charleston. Uh, nine stolen bases. He, he could be one of those overall outfielders that just does a little bit of everything really well. Not quite showing it yet. Uh, only turned 20 in May. Uh, so tons of development left with him. And, you know, the White Sox scooping up his knee, uh, lottery tickets as they can get. They'll certainly take him. The reason the Yankees might be willing to to sell on a guy like Rutherford this early into his career is because they're pushing for the now. You know, so many of their prospects this year have been guys right there. You know, Torres was banging down the door at double A, eventually triple A before he got injured. Uh, Dustin Fowler. Uh, similar thing, you know, busting down the door, making the majors. Clint Frazier's already there. Just Sheffield's at double A. Uh, so much of their talent is wrapped up in those upper le- levels. Chance Adams on the pitching side, even he's now in triple A Scranton Wilkes-Barre, uh, that they are, they are trying to get as much as they can into the Bronx. Rutherford, so many years away, they'll let somebody else develop him, let him get good there. That He's not a guy that's going to help the team right away in, in the way the Yankees are kind of planning. So, uh, it made, it made sense all around in, in that deal um, after doing a little digging on it. But it's going to be, you know, like we always say, kind of years before we see if this one's actually worth it uh, to see what happens with Rutherford and what type of minor leaguer and major leaguer he eventually One thing you kind of touched on there before we get to strike two, which is really the topic that I think carries the day from all these trades. But um, you look at the Chicago Cubs system, and again, if the Cubs end up winning another World Series – then this will all have been worth it. It was all worth it last year, the haul they gave up to get a role as Chapman. But two, three years ago, we looked at that Cubs system and it was like, man, this team has everybody. They got Addison Russell in a trade. They got Javier Baez in a signing. They got or in the draft, rather. They got Chris Bryant. They got all these massive talents that are coming up through this system. That system now is really down. I mean, they've got one top 100 prospect in Jamer Candelario. And other than that, there are not a lot of dudes in the system. I mean, there is some talent that will contribute. I still think Trevor Clifton has a decent upside. Dwayne Underwood has really fallen off, though. There's not a whole lot of guys that you look at in that system and think, all right, well, the Cubs have a lot coming on the way. The reason that I bring that up is windows of contention in baseball seem to open and close so rapidly sometimes. And if things don't work out with short-term rentals, and Jose Quintana doesn't fit that bill. He's under team control for a little while. This isn't like you're going out and acquiring Justin Verlander. You've only got him through the end of the year. But if things don't work out with these acquisitions, there's not a lot coming from the farm for the Cubs, which two, three years ago, we would not have thought possible. Yeah, but they have so many of those guys wrapped up for multiple years already, you know, Anthony Rizzo's free agency is not uh, immediately pending. Chris Bryant, certainly not. Uh, Wilson Contreras, Addison Russell, you know, we can go down the line as we've done for years. Those guys are all locked up. Uh, not locked up in terms of contract extensions or anything like that, but locked up in terms so of their arbitration just, years, et cetera. You know, right, exactly. So they their investment level is kind of low on that front. Um, and, you know, the, you have to push it while you have it. Uh, like you said, yeah. Tyler, I, you know, you if you have a chance to go get a World Series again, and if you're the Cubs, 
you know how long it can be between World Series wins. Um, you know, you have to buy as much as you can and just kind of ride it out and see what happens. I mean, maybe if this is a failed, it's already not a failed experience. They already have right exactly. Last year it was all worth it no matter what. Yeah, you take that. Right, you take that no matter what, and you run with it. Um, but you know, even if the, in three, four years we're talking about, oh, the Cubs need to be sellers now. That's okay. At least they got out of it. Strike already. two. This is the big one of this week's uh, news and what it leads to, and that is the Chicago White Sox now have ten top one hundred prospects on MLB Pipeline's rankings. Not only that which is the most uh, ever since they've been ranking top 100 prospects for MLB Pipeline. But all 10 of those guys are in the top 68. So it's not just like a top 100. Oh, well, they got guys 1 through 99. 1 through 68, 10 of those players are Chicago White Sox prospects. So it leads us to the conversation, is this officially now the best system in baseball? Um, I, I think it's, it's pretty good. solidly, oh, okay. yes. I thought you were going to... I thought you were going to do a, a no here, and I was going to be stunned. We, we, have to, we have to fight now, don't we? No. Embrace uh, debate, uh, Sam. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, as as high as I am on the, the Braves, and I think they're very dynamic, and I love their pitching, and I love you know everything they've done to just acquire talent, this White Sox system is just so thorough. Uh, just looking at – I just wrote this down before we started today. Uh, these are guys who were just acquired during the 2017 season. Uh, Eloy Jimenez, Louis Robert, who they signed, you know, just a little while ago. Uh, Blake Rutherford, as we've discussed. Dylan Cease, as we've discussed. Those are all top 100 names that they've acquired just this season. Uh, going back into the 2016-2017 offseason, top 100 names they acquired. Yohan Mankata, Michael Kopech, Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez. That's eight of the ten names that are now top 100 prospects in that system have been acquired since the end of last season. Uh, that's just nuts. I mean, that's, it, it's essentially how a blueprint, you, if you were doing like a video game thing and like you got to play GM and you got to do whatever and you decided my team's not going to be very good and I'm just going to kind of sell as much as I can. You wouldn't draw this up any better in terms of what a rebuild should look like. Um, now, you know, these are a lot of lottery tickets and, and how do you increase your, your chances in the lottery? You buy more lottery tickets. That's how it works. I mean, not all these guys are going to kind of iron out. I think Zach Collins, his stock is already dropping this year, you know, after he was a first-round pick last year. Uh, I, I wouldn't quite, you know, I know Carson Fulmer is still ranked as a top 100 prospect right now by MLB.com. I think that's probably going to slip uh, when rankings are updated. Uh, I think next week or later this month at the very least. Um, so some of these guys, you know, the shine is already coming off them. But when you, like I said, you're going for just dynamic talent. Um, so that's what, what allows you to have, you know, somebody like Alec Hansen is playing his way into the top 100 discussion. Uh, Dane Dunning continues to improve his stock the way he's climbed, you know, after he was acquired from the Nationals last year in, or last offseason in that same deal that brought over Giolito and Lopez. Uh, you know, you get these guys in your system and you just see what happens. If four of these guys become stars, that's incredible because now you have four guys who you bought cheaply. Uh, you didn't have to sign them on the open market. You didn't have to go and sign them to $200 million contracts. If you have someday a lineup that includes Yohan Mankata and Eloy Jimenez right in the middle, and you know, looking even further down the line, Louis Robert becomes the star that some people think he can be. Uh, 
and you know Blake Rutherford is patrolling center field, and your starting pitcher that day is Michael Kopech throwing 100 miles an hour, and your next starting pitcher the day after that is Dylan Cease, who also throws 100 miles an hour. Uh, it's just, you know, there's just so much talent here that we don't see anywhere else. It's going back to what Tyler said, you know, the 10 of the top 68 right now are White Sox prospects. There are three systems right now, uh, Kansas City, Arizona, and Los Angeles Angels, who don't have any top 100 prospects. Um, you know, it's just it's just mind-blowing. You know, as, as much as I like what the Yankees have done this year and as much as I like what the Braves have done, and I, it's just, you know, this White Sox is not only is it, you know, just so much widespread talent, it's widespread talent at different levels, it's widespread talent at different positions, uh, different skill sets, uh, different tools, all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's going to be years before we find out if Rick Hahn did the right thing in terms of getting all these guys and which guys he got and which guys, you know, I'm sure stories will come out about other packages that he potentially could have traded for. But on its face right now, this is just a tremendous job. And I will be real interested to find out if other teams try to follow this path or even can follow this path. Because this, like you said, Tyler, you know, this has just never been seen before since really prospect rankings have kind of come out and this become has become its own little cottage industry. I think there are a couple of teams you can point to as having done what the White Sox are doing right now. One of them is the Chicago Cubs, who we just talked about with so much talent over the last three, four, five years in that system that has now made it up and graduated to the big leagues. One of them is the Houston Astros, which is the best team in baseball as of right now. Maybe the Dodgers are in that debate too. Um, certainly the Dodgers are in that debate. They're just not built in the same way as the Astros. The White Sox right now, you could argue, are as good as either of those systems at their prime. They still have some guys that need to prove some things. Um, and they've got some guys that I think you're worried about. You know, you touched on uh, that maybe stock is falling a little bit. But the fact of the matter is there's so many of these guys. There's so much talent that even if 75% of that talent doesn't hit in the way you would love for it to hit, you're still going to be one of the upper echelon systems in baseball and therefore one of the best teams in baseball, which is what the White Sox look like they're preparing themselves to be coming up in the next couple of years for a three, four, five-year stretch, however it could play out. Um, but this is exceedingly impressive. Um, Rick Hahn, kudos to that guy for what he's been able to bring in over the last not even few years. I mean, this is really just dating back to November and December, really what we've seen with the remaking of this system. And uh, it's been very impressive to watch. And it's kind of like now you see the White Sox are getting set to announce a trade and you just wonder, well, how bad are they going to fleece whoever they're going into this deal with? That's sort of how it's gotten to feel. It, it's kind of, it kind of feels that way, but also I think that I, I don't know if it's fleecing. I think they just, they've done a really good job at realizing what assets they have and playing the market for itself. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is kind of playing the system a little bit. I mean, but it, when you are trading Chris Sale, you should get somebody like Mankata back. Uh, is the number one prospect in baseball right now. Uh, but Chris Sale arguably is, you know, maybe the number two pitcher in baseball right now behind Clayton Kershaw. He just knew what he had, and he decided, you know what, once we're cutting bait, we are really cutting bait. You know, we are going to just have essentially it, it's been a little bit of a slow burn since that offseason, but it's been a fire sale. You know, if they have somebody, they are going to trade them. They could have traded Quintana last offseason, but they didn't because they probably didn't get the package that they were looking for. Now 
if this trade had happened last offseason, we would have the same feeling we do now of, you know, Jimenez is a beast, Cease is a fire thrower. And, uh, yeah, he just had to wait it out until a team got desperate enough to give him what he wanted. And that's that's what you want in a GM, is somebody who is not going to trade for a trade's sake, but actually trade when the package is right. And I think that might be Hans' well, best skill Well, and I think right. what is important to note in what has made these deals so different and so impressive with the White Sox is, yeah, you trade away Chris Sale, you expect to get somebody like uh, Yoan Makata in return. You don't expect to get multiple prospects like that in return, and that's what Rick Hahn has been able to do. He's been able to get the Michael Kopecks. He's been able to get the Reynaldo Lopez's as secondary guys in these deals, and those are extremely exciting and very good talents, and that's what's made these such headline grabbers. It's not just that you're trading away proven major league talent, you're getting back a good package that's that you're getting back an outstanding package for guys who you know the value of and in that you're really driving up the market as well because now other teams are going to think well look at what the White Sox got for their guy we need more for this guy so it's making the the trade market a very fascinating dynamic as of right now right now too um and again we've still got by the time you're listening to this over 10 days to go to the trade deadline so it could be a crazy next week and a half um strike three this week Sam we are rolling out a series on the site the last three days of this week in which we are giving mid-season grades to each major league organization's farm system you have seen all 30 uh you compiled them for us we all wrote them you put them all together what stands out to you from the the grades that we assigned for the first half of the year yeah um well one thing i want to kind of address from the off here is that we kind of look at this in terms of the same way we look at the best farm system milby or top farm system milby i should say um it's not like who has the most talent it's not uh, you know, who is trending in the right direction. And we're not grading these on a curve. You know, we're not going to give the Angels a, a good grade just because they've, you know, beaten expectations. If they still don't have really a guy who's a top 100 prospect yet, then we're not going to give you higher than a C minus, really. Um, so it, in the kind of compiling this, it doesn't look like anybody is overly failing. I mean, Tyler, you can kind of address this. I feel like the Giants might yeah. kind of be in that way. Um, you know, there, there was one other team gave a D minus two, I think, uh, which was the Miami Marlins just because Braxton Garrett's another, uh, top pick that they've had who needs Tommy John surgery and nobody else has really stood out in that system. And they've also just lost a bunch of games in terms of what their minor league system looks like. So even the teams aren't doing well. Um, but we're trying to combine, you know, overall farm system performance in terms of wins and losses, what teams are doing well collectively and then we'll take also a look at, you know, which prospects are improving their stock, who's doing well statistically at the levels that they're at, all that kind of stuff, and kind of combine it into a grade. Uh, we'll update rankings this this uh, off season, But if you look at these grades, you can kind of get an idea and a snapshot of where we're at so far. Uh, I talked last week, you know, we did, or whenever it was, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, about who my top farm system Milby would be at this point. And I, I said the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, just because they are combining all those things uh, that we determine are really important. Um, so we gave them an A minus uh, just because, you know, somebody like JP Crawford is not performing up to the level we thought he would be. Um, so there's not necessarily one tacked on superstar, potential superstar in that system anymore. Uh, you can make the case that Reese Hoskins is looking even better. Scott Kingery is playing him his way into that dis discussion and Sixto Sanchez. Uh, is another guy who can bring heat and have special control, but he's only at Class A. So, um, you know, how much do we kind of put into that? We'll have to kind of wait and see. Uh, 
Um, but they, they're probably my standout system in terms of one that looked talented, um, is still talented and also is winning ball games on a consistent basis. Uh, but the New York Yankees, we gave a, a really good score to, uh, I wanted to give them an A, I think just because they do lead the minors in collective winning percentage. Uh, they are tops in that, in that category. Um, but just the, the amount of injuries that they've had just rubbed off the shine of that a little bit. So I don't think we have a team that's going to get an A or an A plus necessarily for this season. Um, but we're not also going to give out an F, a straight F. Though, Tyler, I, w- I would like to hear your thoughts on the Giants and what has kind of gone wrong in that system and what they could potentially do yeah, in the Yeah, I mean, that half. system right now, and they have not been helped by factors out of their control, um, such as health. I mean, obviously, Christian Arroyo's injury is something that uh, was just such a bummer. He missed a couple of weeks after being hit in the hand by a pitch, in, uh, basically immediately after his return to AAA, that in his first game back was hit in the same hand and broke it. So Christian Arroyo could be done for the rest of the season. Tyler Beatty's season has not been very good. He's got a 5-7 and seven record and a 5.12 ERA and 18 starts so far this this year for Triple A Sacramento, um, the strikeout numbers not overly impressive. Seventy-eight Ks and one hundred and two innings pitched. Opponents are hitting him to the tune of a two eighty-seven average. And you just look down the line. There are some impressive seasons. Uh, Travis or Chris Shaw has had a pretty good year between Double A Richmond and Triple A Sacramento. But the overwhelming majority of guys either fall in the category of okay or man that's not good um there one bright spot that i do want to point out um a guy who i think most people have really forgotten about um but over the last several seasons we've been waiting for something from kyle crick kyle crick looks like maybe he's getting himself figured out he's made 24 appearances in relief this year he struck out 39 batters in 29 and a third innings and an era of 2.76 not necessarily what people expected from him going into his professional career but that was such a dynamic arm and for so long the Giants wanted to see if he could get things figured out and he just hadn't uh but it is definitely a it's a rough system I mean this is a this is a system that is in terms of its individual talent its top level talent is not in a very good place and I'll I'll say this you can't necessarily take much at all from wins and losses in the minor leagues and I'll, I'll give you the prime example why we just talked about a system that could be the best overall system in minor league baseball Chicago White Sox going into play on July 19th are the worst minor league system in baseball in terms of wins and losses they're 194 and 266 is a system that's 422 overall in a winning percentage but the Giants are 199 and 265 and they just don't have a lot of good teams the best record in that system among full season teams the best is the san jose giants who are 14 games under 541 and 55 um it's just not a very talent laden system and the guys who are there have really struggled whether it's injury whether it's inconsistency whatever it's a rough year and it's been such a brutal year at the major league level for the giants that you kind of want to be able to give them something and say it's all right there are guys who are on the way guys who could contribute sometime soon it's just not the case right now yeah and there's one guy i do want to kind of bring up in that system that i feel like is capable of popping off in the second half is brian reynolds um i did him as a tool shed last week i think he was the giants only uh, futures game representative. Uh, he has, you know, we've talked about Vanderbilt play, uh, players before on this podcast. Lord knows we've had tons of them on the pod itself. Um, and he kind of talked about what it's like to go against those pitchers and how you get to see 
great arms and in, in fall games and that kind of stuff and how that's prepared him for the majors or for the minors excuse me um but you know talking to his manager it seems like he's at least improving his approach at the plate he's you know he's kind of laying off pitches a little bit more he's certainly walking more over this second half than he did in the first um you know he's a college bat a college switch hitter a chance to be an, an all-around type he's got pretty good speed um you know what happens with him in the second half i think is going to be really interesting but he has gotten better each month and you know after being a second round pick last year after hitting you know the cover off the ball during his time at vanderbilt i feel like there's more good things to come from him uh if you're looking for a potential bright spot i went in that inventive system. with my grades and i gave the giants uh as their grade the gif of bart simpson holding the at least you tried cake and then walking over and throwing it in the trash that's the grade i gave them i don't think that's what's actually going to come out in the story i I really wanted to include those (laughs) in uh in our cms as best i could but i I, but let's just say all right unbelievable um so that is uh three strikes for this week's edition the 119th episode of the show before the show podcast coming up we're gonna head to still one of the most talented systems in minor league baseball and that's the houston astros organization and class a advanced Bowie's creek in the carolina league where we will catch up with a young right-hander and a very very dynamic and exciting arm in that organization forrest whitley who will join the show to talk about his full season work between class a quad cities and class a advanced Bowie's creek and a whole lot more coming up next The Carolina League is where we find our guests for episode number 119 of the show before the show in the Houston Astros organization with the Bowie's Creek Astros at the Class A advanced level. It is Houston's number five overall prospect, Forrest Whitley, the right-hander who joins us. Forrest, welcome to the show. How are things? Things are good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for joining us. So this has been, uh, let's say, a decent start to your Carolina League career. Three starts, an ERA of 0.57 at the Class A advanced level. Eight hits allowed in 15 and two-thirds. 24 strikeouts against two walks. Baseball is supposed to get more difficult as you climb the ladder. Did nobody explain that to you? No, they did. <laughs> <laughs> What's been, what has enabled this in the Carolina League? I mean, the numbers were great in Quad Cities, and we'll talk about that. But this has been really eye-opening so far. Yeah, you know, uh, the thing that I can just attribute that most to is just being able to translate my performance in the Midwest and the other, over to the Carolina League. You know, I feel like with the with the things that I'm able to do, I'm able to kind of translate that uh, anywhere I could go. So, you know, things have just obviously worked out in that manner and uh, just plan on keeping, keeping it going. And, and what was that conversation like when they decided to move you that quickly? I mean, was this even a goal of yours coming into the year? Because mostly, you know, when you, you know it's going to be your first full season – and you're even you're starting out class A. Some some organizations like to keep guys, you know, your age, only being 19 at one place all year, just get you super comfortable. Um, so what was that conversation like when they wanted to move you as quick as they did? You know, to be to be completely honest with you, like I was I was very surprised. It was uh, it was from like a commuter bus trip, and uh, they told me I was going up. Uh, at the end of that bus trip, and I, I was in shock. I was not expecting uh, to get moved back quickly. Um, but yeah, things have ended up working out, left the next day and you know, here I am. And take us through your approach to this first full season. You know, you get taken in the first round last year by the Astros, go into, you know, a system that's obviously on the rise, a major league organization that's on the rise, having a really good year this year. Uh, you know, they start you out in April. 
some organizations have started their first round pitchers, you know, later they held them back and extended something like that. You're coming right out of the gate. You know, what was your approach to your first full season and what were your expectations? Uh, you know, my expectations, uh, they weren't too big, you know, just, just coming in and, you know, pitching wherever they place me. I, I trust these guys a lot and, uh, and what they're doing with me. So, uh, just, just, you know, perform to the best of my ability, wherever they stick me and, you know, see where, see where I end up. And as far as like personal goals, just, you know, limit the walks, limit the hits, uh, limit base runners altogether, uh, and just get ahead in the count, uh, limit your pitches per outing. And those are just a couple of things that I've, that I've been working on so far this year and they've been working out. Forrest made 12 appearances with Class A Quad Cities in the Midwest League to start the year, a 2.91 ERA over that span of time. It's 67 strikeouts and 46 in the third innings. The strikeout numbers really jump off the page this year. Uh, combined in 62 innings, it's 91 Ks against 23 walks. What do you think it is about your arsenal? I mean, you've got four very well-graded pitches, um, and guys, especially at the Class A level, are still learning in large part how to mix, how to attack hitters, game plans, all that type of stuff. What do you think has enabled that that's been so difficult for hitters to key on from what you've been able to approach them with over two levels? You know, I really think it's just, I think it's just the change of speed that's really been the, the, the difference maker. And, uh, you know, lately my, my change-ups just been a lot lower speed than it had been previously to this year. It's just, it's almost, almost like a 12 to 15 mile an hour difference. So um, I think that's another thing. And I think just the, 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 the speed differential all around my arsenal is uh it's pretty. It's pretty solid. They're all. They're all different speeds, and I think that's just the. That's that's the main thing is keeping the hitters off balance with the changing speeds in all my pitches. Forrest, let me ask you this question. You were the 17th overall pick last year. According to MLB Pipeline, this is uh, a, a crazy transformation over your four years in high school. You were under six feet tall, and uh, according to their scouting write-up, had a fastball in the mid-70s when you got to high school, and by your sophomore year, you were six seven and throwing in the low 90s. Is that right? Yes, that is true. How on earth, like, did your bones hurt? How does a human being grow that fast? Yeah. So what happened was when I was going when I was going into high school, my first semester, I was around like five eleven, six foot, uh, didn't have a whole lot of muscle on me. And then uh, second semester, I grew to about like six five, uh, <laughs> and that was that was honestly pretty painful. Uh, had a lot of growing pains, and it was That's really insane. awkward. Yeah, it, it was nuts, man. So how did the baseball arsenal come along with that? I mean, obviously there's going to be so many different physiological changes as a ball player throughout your four years of development in high school, but to condense that all down into like one semester, the thing that's so difficult about it from a pitcher standpoint is repeating your mechanics is difficult enough as a pitcher. But if you're going from five eleven to six, five, and then on to six, seven, that's a, I would imagine an extremely difficult challenge. Oh yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I can really attribute attribute that to my pitching coach, Dave Smith, back home. I mean, he's the guy that I got with when I was like 12, 13 years old, and I've been working with him ever since. And uh, he's he's been really good to me, and we still we still talk all the time. He, he's he's a good person to have in my ear, and you know, I really attribute like most of that success to him because he's the one who really helped me out in that aspect. And and at one point, did it feel like it, things were kind of clicking with that kind of stuff? I mean, were you taking it to a radar gun every day just to see how things were progressing? Or, like, when did you know you were throwing as hard as you are uh, at that young age? Well, how it went, like, I, I didn't start playing travel ball until my sophomore year of high school going into junior year. So um, I, did, I did a couple tournaments, and I heard some, like, readings – 
uh, like in the mid eighties. And I was like, wow, like, you know, maybe I can get like a college baseball scholarship, you know, if I, if I pursue this in, in, a, in a summer baseball showcase. So I, like, I, pre- I pretty much begged my dad to put me on a summer baseball team and he did it. And, uh, so that summer before junior year ended up, uh, you know, touching 90 a couple times. I mean, this is before sophomore year. I apologize. Uh, I ended up kept touching 90 a couple times. I went to the area code tryout and uh, had a good showing there. So I was able to get my, my name out to colleges and a couple of pro scouts. And then uh, once that high school season rolled around, I was able to, you know, uh, sit more comfortably in the low 90s and get a little bit higher. And then, uh, you know, once that, once that summer before senior year rolled around, everything just started to click. Uh, the only thing that was setting me back a little bit was my weight. So I took off a little bit of weight and seen after senior year, you know, uh, body started to come together. Uh, so did my catchability. So everything started to click right around then. So I, I guess I got to ask the obvious follow-up. How much are you texting your dad? Just I told you so. On a is it a daily basis? Is it a <laughs> weekly basis? Is it... <laughs> uh, he he's a pretty strong supporter now, so I don't give him I would a whole hope lot so. of crap yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame him. But what? We were talking about mechanics before and, you know, working with your long levers and all that kind of stuff. One thing I've read is that you've worked exclusively out of the stretch at this point. Is that thing, is that a thing that's going to stick with you or is this just kind of a training mechanism at this point? You know, it's going to stick with me as long as it keeps working. Uh, it's, it's been working ever since I've been having success in the Midwest league up until this point. So, you know, I'm not going to change anything. It's, 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 uh, it's going to work. So, you know, we'll see yeah, what, what do you think about that translates so well? I think it's it's just the, the limiting the moving parts is the is the main thing. It's really helping. Like, obviously, I have long levers, so uh, a wind-up delivery is a little bit harder to control than a guy that would be six foot. So, you know, just limiting the, limiting the movement and uh, just, you know, simplifying my mechanics a little bit uh, helped with my location. So ended up ended up working out. And one thing I I always like to talk to, you know, especially first year guys, you know, you're used to in high school going as deep as you need to trying to win games. Obviously, now it's about development and they've got a pretty good cap on you in terms of pitches and innings for the season and all that kind of stuff. You know, when you were first starting the season, you went five innings your first time out, but then three innings the next time, two innings the time after that, so on and so forth. You haven't thrown more than five and two thirds. Um, you know, what is it like knowing, you know, you're going out every fifth or sixth day, but there, there is going to be that limit on you. Are you trying to pour as much in, into what you have in those first five innings, or are you trying to extend the outing and go as deep as you can? I'm just trying to treat it like a regular start, like if I was, uh, if I was going nine, um, you know, that's how you got to treat every start. Uh, you can't really, you can't really think too much about the pitch count going to the outing. You just, you just got to focus on, on, uh, going out there and throwing nine and, you know, trusting the guys, uh, the coaching staff to, you know, uh, pull you when it's time and understand that they have a plan for you. So, you know, that's, that's just, that's just my mentality. I feel like that's the, that's the, that's the best mentality going into it because, you know, I'll eventually be going, uh, hold games or as long as I could possibly go on the upper level. So, uh, that's just the mentality I have going into it. Forrest, I want to go back a couple of years in your uh, high school career. In 2015, you remember the United States U18 national team that won uh, the Americans' third consecutive under-18 baseball World Cup in Osaka, Japan. That team went 8-1. and one. You guys beat Japan in the gold medal game, a 2-1 to one game in front of 15,000 fans at Koshian Stadium. That was an intense 
competition in an intense tournament, but I would imagine also prepared you for what you would see in pro ball. I mean, you haven't seen any crowds of 15,000 yet in pro ball, but take me back through that experience of what that was like being on a team. I mean, there were a lot of guys on that team that are already in pro ball as well uh, or playing at a high level collegiately. To have that experience, to have that exposure, and to win a gold medal overseas with United States across your chest, what was that like for you? Well, I'm going to let you know, that was, that was definitely by far the best baseball experience I've had up up, up until this point. Um, I still keep in touch with all those guys. All those guys are really dear friends of mine. So, uh, But, yeah, like like you said, the competition in that tournament, everything leading up to that point in the trials, uh, really, really prepared me uh, for what I'm seeing right now. So I completely agree with you in that aspect. And, uh you know, it was, just, it, was, it, was, it was truly an unbelievable experience, you know, travel overseas and, you know, play overseas competition with, you know, the best guys in the country. That was just like truly a one of a time, one of, one of a lifetime experience. So it, it was unreal. One of the things that, that stands out about that kind of in juxtaposition to where you are in your career now is you're playing in front of massive crowds in uh, in that tournament, in rabid fans who are supporting you know the home team in Japan and the gold medal game and, and just a very intense atmosphere. You're in a really unique atmosphere in the minor leagues right now in Bowie's Creek in that it's a, a placeholder stop right now for that franchise, will be, which will be moving after a couple of seasons, a very small, very intimate ballpark. You look at things in the Carolina League and you think like, oh man, Bowie's Creek is only averaging 500 26 fans per game that stadium only seats something like 650 so it's a really unique environment what has that been like uh you know playing in a place that's very different from quad cities very different from what you saw obviously overseas uh and really isn't going to be uh a, a thing that hangs on for long in the carolina league it's kind of a, a spot where you get to experience something not a whole lot of other guys will you know i'm just kind of taking it for what it is you know i, th- I think it's pretty cool that i you know i get an opportunity to play uh Bowie's creek you know there's only a two-year window that ever happens. So, you know, I'm just trying to look at the positives to it. And as far as the crowds go, you know, I, I feel like that's pretty relative. Uh, it's not something that bothers me much. And I think it's not really something that bothers the team much either. You know, once you get into pro ball, you kind of get used to, to, the, to the small crowds. I was able to get used to that last year in the Gulf Coast League where you'd average like maybe six or seven people a game. So um, as far as that goes, it doesn't really bug me that much. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a pretty cool opportunity to play at this place the way that I'm looking at it. And kind of sticking with that idea of being at Bowie's Creek, you know, we were talking about moving up as quickly as you have, and you said that was a little bit of a surprise to even you. Um, you know, with the the moves that you have made this year, does does this change the feel of the trajectory you're on? Do you feel like you can be a quicker climber than even you believed back in, you know, February or even March? Oh, absolutely. This has instilled a ton of confidence in me, and I think uh, – I think uh, – the organization, it just showed me that the organization uh, really believes in me and has a lot of confidence in me as well. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really good thing for my moral, for my moral, my moral and uh, just couldn't be happier about it. Uh, but that, I guess the most important thing right now is just keep on throwing and you know, trust what they've got going on for me and just keep, just keep performing to the best of my ability. He is Forrest Whitley, the number five prospect in the Houston Astros organization and MLB Pipeline's number 71 overall prospect in baseball. And you can find him on Twitter. He is at Forrest Whitley there. And Forrest, continued success. Congratulations on everything so far. And uh, best of luck the rest of the way with Bowie's Creek or wherever you find yourself the rest of this season. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show, guys.
good week for promotions across the world of minor league baseball, and Benjamin Hill is to discuss any and all of them with us in this segment. Hi, Ben. Hi. Um, Probably not all. Yeah, I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> we're not going to discuss all of them. There's just not. Buckle in, everybody, because we're, we're gonna going to go through coast coast. all of yeah. them. Yeah. The Arizona no, League Angels this week will be doing. No. If an Arizona League team was doing a promo, yeah, you, I would that would be like a special because that itself. would be a first in baseball would, history. Yeah. Would they have to do something just small for that to be notable, or do you think they would have to just blow it out just to get as many people as possible to go to an AZL game? Well, first they'd have to start charging admission and uh, <laughs> keeping attendance to figures. And that yeah, type keeping of stuff. attendance yeah. figures. They could say all scouts and family members I get in free, actually, just like every other game. <laughs> actually don't know the answer to this in most cases did they play in the big league spring training stadiums for the most part in the azl and the uh, i think it's the GCL on, is different it's mostly on backfields i think it's mostly okay. on backfields i'm no expert on it but i don't think they usually play in the proper facility although i wouldn't be surprised if at times uh, you know an am game they just played at the spring training facility i don't know that's something for us all to explore we should all learn there there's always something to learn in this game and uh we will we'll do that with our first promotion of the week where we will learn. Maybe not learn. Maybe we won't learn because that's kind of the point of all of this. But um, there is a terrific promo coming up with the State College Spikes this week who will dress up in conspiracy theory jerseys for Salute to Conspiracy Theories Night, which is uh, coming up this week. It is actually well, tonight. We're recording it this is on tonight. Wednesday. Yeah, so, so uh, tonight. by the time you listen to this, it will have occurred. Or will or, it? Or has it that's what they want you to (laughs) um but this is great the the crosscutters uh are the opponent for this week the williamsport crosscutters for this game state college spikes will take the field against the crosscutters wearing jerseys that feature on the front um a sublimated image of the moon landing possibly faked and on the back a backpack parachute with the uh name tag uh that says property of db cooper if you're unfamiliar with db cooper fall down that internet rabbit hole because that's one of my most favorite world mysteries of all time but this is a cool this is a really cool promo night this is a good idea it's a totally bizarre promo um and and the the extent to which the spikes have gone to uh, add a lot of details and have a lot of fun with this is uh, really remarkable and admirable, I'd say. So it's salute to conspiracy theories night, and it is a wide ranging celebration of uh, you know the biggest mysteries in American history, and the spikes claim to have solved many of them. DB Cooper is scheduled to land on the field tonight, I guess via parachute, and uh, deliver a first pitch ball or balls, and uh, those will be thrown by. Uh, Ike the Spike, the mascot, wearing a bloody sock, uh, referencing uh, the Kurt Schilling uh, conspiracy theory of whether or not his uh, sock was actually bloody. And uh, Sid Finch is throwing out the other first pitch. Like the actual Sid Finch, like the guy who posed for the picture, or just some guy who's going to be, you know, not wearing a shoe and having a backwards Mets cap? We don't know. We like really so don't many know. things we don't know. Yeah, is it going to be the actual D.B. Cooper? I don't know. <laughs> you know, but there, there's a lot of stuff going on here. They're going to have Secret Service personnel guarding the kids zone because it's Area 51 East on this night. And uh, actually, just uh, pretty shortly before I came in here to tape this segment, um, I saw a tweet that said they, they, the grounds crew has actually put crop circles in the outfield. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on. If you check out these jerseys, they're obviously in the article. Uh, check it out on milb.com. Uh, yeah, they reference the moon landing. They reference DB Cooper, and then the spikes uh, name. Every letter has all these arcane symbols next to it. Um, 
you know, the Owl of Minerva is somehow in there. I don't even know what that is, but it's, it's like an uh, hourglass. There's an hourglass. I think there's maybe a crop circle. There's, there's different be references. Like the pyramid with the all-seeing eye. And the, yeah, and there's that. references to secret societies and all this. So this is a bizarre, fun uh, theme night, and the and the spikes are uh, really going for it. And, and kudos to them for uh, for doing something of this nature. They really and thought you- this out too. Scott Walker's the GM of the spikes. He said uh, after we decided to do it, the date made itself evident. Tonight, July 19th, falls between two historic dates in conspiracy theory history. July 18th, 1938 is when the Navy called off its search for Amelia Earhart. And July 20th, 1969 is when we allegedly landed on the moon, as his quote says. Uh, Amelia Earhart has been in the news a lot lately because it's uh, possible that maybe they have found her remains. But this is they really put a ton of thought into this. They did, and uh, they're continuing the search for Amelia Earhart at the ballpark. And Joe Putman, just in case she landed in State College. Well, right, and Joe Putnam, the uh, Spikes uh, Broadcaster Media Relations Director, uh, is a distant relative of George Putnam, Amelia Earhart's husband. So they are wow. the Spikes are claiming, I, I suppose accurately, that a relative of Amelia Earhart will be on hand to continue the huh. search for Amelia Earhart. So uh, this is a really and- good one. It's like what you said, Tyler. You know, we've all seen it. You know, you see a theme night on the promo schedule, and then it really doesn't amount to much more than a couple of goofy headshots right. and maybe a few staff members in a in a costume. And that's fine. It is what it is. Teams get tired. They run out of resources. It happens. But to see an idea, especially that one this esoteric, uh, you know, and have it taken to these lengths is is, is really cool. And uh, I'm not sure this might be too bizarre to be copied around minor league baseball. What I would love to see a bunch of conspiracy theory promos, um, you know, because this is a deep, <laughs> a deep uh, rabbit hole you can get into. Right. I was going to say, do you think this could become kind of like a state college tradition in a way that you know every July 19th going forward that they have a home game? they could do this type of thing or does this not necessarily does this have more gas as a one-off i think they can take it as far as they want to go i think a lot of it depends on what happens tonight um you know the reaction they get and if they see it's something uh you know worthwhile to continue they are clearly having fun with it and and you know that goes a long way obviously these teams are businesses uh they need to justify the decisions they make the the money they're spending the, uh, the time and energy they're putting into their promotions but you know, it's a long season, and uh, when you can tell a staff is engaged with a promo and having fun with it, that speaks to a larger issue in that you're working well together as a staff and you're being creative, and that reflects in the overall product for sure. Well, let's move it along. Uh, there are a ton of good promos this week in the minor leagues. The uh, Brooklyn Cyclones will be giving away uh, a bobblehead featuring Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore for Villain Appreciation Night. Um, the villains, they don't get a whole lot of appreciation, which is, you know, uh, go for it, Brooklyn. Daytona Tortuga is a really cool promo on Friday. They will uh, pay tribute to the life of Craig Sager, the late sports broadcaster, by wearing very Craig Sager-themed jerseys with a crazy suit jacket-looking thing over a crazy-looking shirt, that type of stuff. But it's all up uh, Promo Watch on MILB.com right now. And we'll switch gears and go to the Pioneer League. Ben spent a whole bunch of time in the Pioneer League over the last couple of weeks. And Idaho Falls is the site of the latest story where a broadcaster has become way more than just a broadcaster for the Idaho Falls Chuckers and that baseball community. Tell us about it, Ben. Yeah. um, Well, you know, this is what I like about my road trips no matter where I go. But, you know, particularly in, you know, like the Pioneer League where I just – teams that I haven't really had the opportunity to cover much at all and not really knowing who I'll meet at the ballpark or what I'll find or what I'll not find or what team will just never respond to my emails. Never mind. Um, and in Idaho Falls, I, I talked to uh, John Balgini, 
the broadcaster who's been there for 33 years. He's uh, really seen it all. Uh, he's a radio DJ in the area and, uh, you know, calls the games at Melaleuca Field, the home of the Chuckers. And he came up with the Chuckers name. And, uh, you know, it really took me going to Idaho Falls to determine once and for all that these are Chuckers. You know, it's C-H- U-K-A-R-S. So I always kind of said, "Is like, is that two cars? Two cars, yeah. And I didn't, I, and, you know, I learned, you know, via the logo long ago that they were birds, but I'd never really heard of chuckers. But uh, chuckers are game birds. They are members of the pheasant family. Um, and uh, Balgini, they were, they were doing a name the team contest uh, prior to the 2004 season. Well, here's something funny. The uh, Idaho Falls was a Braves affiliate for years, and they were called the Idaho, Fall, Idaho Falls Braves. And then they switched to the Padres, and but just kept the Braves name for like five more years, <laughs> which uh, you don't see happen very huh. often. They they just were like, I guess they just still like, hey, we got all this signage and logos and stuff in the team stores, so we're the Padres affiliates, but we're going to be called the Braves. <laughs> but they eventually spent several years as the actual Idaho Falls Padres, and uh, then when they switched to KC to Kansas City prior to 2004 with their affiliation, that's when they said, let's do a. Uh, a unique name, and uh, John Balgini, the uh, broadcaster, uh, came up with Chucker, and uh, for him, you know, he it had the double meaning of, hey, these are birds that are in the area, and uh, a Chucker is a pitcher, you know, so there you go, and, uh, you know, he told me it's going to be on my headstone, the mother Chucker, John Balgini, and uh, he was a cool guy to talk to, you can obviously uh, check out that story, uh, you know, I, 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 I hope he lives a very long life, but that would be a pretty cool tombstone if he actually <laughs> if he actually does it. Uh, and he also uh, told me a story about how uh, Waylon Jennings would be in the broadcast booth with him on occasion because uh, his partner, who was an Idaho Falls uh, broadcasting legend, Jim Garsho, um, worked in the radio biz and gave Waylon his first job. And, you know, they stayed friends and Waylon would come by Idaho Falls and uh, hang out in the press box and, uh, you know, stay on the air for a few innings. So that's uh, pretty cool stuff. So pretty cool to, you know, go to these places and meet these people and write about them, and that's what I'm doing. And um, one thing, you mentioned the Braves and team names, so we might as well touch on this while we can here, um, just because I just thought of it, and I wish I was better at segues like uh, Tyler is. But Tyler uh, is so good at segues. Yeah, yeah, right. No, you really are. You're much better at this than you're much more trained at this than I am. But anyways, uh, speaking of segues, yeah, there we go. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, No, but since we last talked, I think uh, Gwinnett, you know, has been the Braves as long as they've been a Braves affiliate. That's such a big part of that system other than the Lynchburg or not Lynchburg Hillcats. Um, But anyway, Florida Fire Frogs, Fire Frogs. They just changed this year. I got caught up in that. But now Gwinnett's going to be changing names next year. Uh, they came out with a, their team name possibilities, the Gwinnett Buttons, the Gwinnett Big Mouse, the Gwinnett Gobblers, Gwinnett Hush Puppies, Gwinnett Lamb Chops, and Gwinnett Sweet Teas. Uh, what can you kind of tell us about these, and you know, do you have a favorite amongst these six? Well, I mean, well, first of all, what you were just kind of alluding to, uh, the Braves own all the teams in their system except for their A Advanced affiliate, and that is currently the Florida Fire Frogs. But every other team in the Braves system is owned by the Braves and called the Braves. It's boring, but it's uh, simple. Um, and, you know, so for years, it's kind of been like that's the way the Braves do it. And uh, when Gwinnett came about, I believe the first season was 2008, I want to say, perhaps 2009. Uh you know, they were the Gwinnett Braves because they were owned by the Braves and they were the AAA team, and there you go. And they had moved from Richmond where they were the Richmond Braves. Yeah, they were the Richmond Braves, and uh, then they became the Gwinnett Braves. That's just the way the Braves do something. 
thing, not something. That's the way that they do things. things. Just things, no sum. That's that's how they operate. Uh, But you know, Gwinnett, you know, they've struggled at the gate. Um, You know, some of the development around the stadium hasn't materialized, um, and not that a team name will you know fix um, you know larger issues, but they are definitely one. I think a team in need of uh, unique branding and uh, to kind of up the energy and excitement around the organization. And and two, there's just uh, a logistical issue of. Gwinnett plays close enough to Atlanta that there was real confusion sometimes when you talked about going to a Braves game. It literally could have meant uh, the AAA Gwinnett Braves or the Atlanta Braves. Um, So, you know, I think they've wanted their own identity for quite some time. You know, Atlanta, they have their way of doing things and, you know, they kept things status quo. But apparently that opinion changed and uh, Gwinnett is now uh, moving into the, you know, the brandiose realm of of branding and rebranding and new team names. It's kind of interesting, you know, I've been covering this for so long that at least two of these names I recognize right off the bat from other name the team contests that Brandios uh, affiliated teams have held. I remember Lamb Chops was one of the the options in Lynchburg's uh, name the team contest last year when they ended up just keeping the Hillcats name. And I believe that uh, Richmond, uh, after the flying score, uh, um, after a double-A team came into Richmond, I believe uh, Hush Puppies was one of the options before they went with Flying Squirrels. So if I had more time and it was the offseason, I'd go through and try to find uh, team names that have been used in multiple Name the Team contests because that's the kind of groundbreaking journalism that I do. And um, so there's a lot of good options. You know, I, I was influenced by Twitter because as soon as it was announced that Gwinnett would be changing their name uh, before any of these uh, finalists were announced, uh, people kept saying, Buttons. The Gwinnett Buttons. It's got to be the Gwinnett Buttons. And I'm a fan of American history, but I got to admit that I didn't immediately get it that Gwinnett Button is uh, – he, he signed the Declaration of Independence, and Gwinnett County is named after Button Gwinnett. So this team would be the Gwinnett Buttons, and that's the, the, the name I've gotten. I've seen the most support for thus far and probably would be my favorite because of the historical tie-in. Uh, I also kind of like Big Mouths just because – well, it's named after the state fish, but I think Big Mouths could just be a really interesting logo. <laughs> and I just kind of like to see uh, what Brandios would come up with for a team that is named the Big Mouths. But if I had to pick, I'd probably go with Buttons because you have a real cool American history uh, tie-in. And then obviously the it's the buttons. You have buttons on your uniform and you could you know do all sorts of things with literal buttons while also tying it into uh, your county's namesake and uh, the Declaration of Independence. And as everyone knows, from the moment Georgia signed on with the Declaration of Independence through the present day, it was smooth sailing in relations between the South and everybody else. Um, ben, let's move on. Triple A, the Salt Lake Bees. Uh, that was where your one stop outside of the Pioneer League was um, in your road trip out west. And the Salt Lake Bees have a broadcaster who has combined food and travel in the PCL and ballparks and the everything about minor league baseball as it's kind of seen through the prism of food. And this is an upcoming story uh, about that combination, which you don't get in a whole lot of areas to travel as far as the minor leagues go from time zone to time zone to time zone. PCL is one of the most far flung leagues in all of MILB. So tell us about this story. Yeah, when I was in Salt Lake, you know, I, I try to vary my article topics, not just broadcasters, but I ended up, ended up doing uh, back-to-back broadcaster stories here. Um, this story will run on Friday. Uh, I'm speaking to you on Wednesday. This podcast will be released on Thursday, but it all it's all seamless. Um, but the story on Friday is about Salt Lake Bees announcer Steve Clocky, um, who has been the team's announcer uh, since the current iteration of this team began in 1994. 
And uh, he became a big fan of the Food Network show, you know, Guy Fieri, uh, diners, drive-throughs, drive-ins, diners, drive-ins, and dives, the triple D, diners, drive-ins, and dives. I mean, I, I know the show, of course, but I always mix up the order of the different words. Um, so he became a big fan of that show and then had this idea, you know, especially traveling around in the PCL, which is anything but Pacific Coast. You know, you have teams as far east as, you know, Nashville and Memphis and then, you know, Tacoma and uh, Fresno and Salt Lake and Colorado Springs and, you know, on and on and on. So he had the idea to look up all the um, different restaurant establishments that were in proximity to a PCL uh, city and visit them. And uh, when I talked to him when I was in Salt Lake a couple weeks back, he said that um, he's now been to 161 different restaurants that were featured on diners, drive-ins, and dives. And uh, he's kept a blog, which hasn't been updated too recently. He said mainly because he's starting to run out of places. But he has a dive or a blog called uh, Triple D in Triple A. And uh, I'm going to do a story about uh, Steve and uh, you know his career with the Salt Lake Bees and how he's. Uh, on the side, turned this into a culinary journey, and you know he's got lots of stories about his favorite re- favorite restaurants all throughout the uh, Pacific Coast League. There's a ton of them. He's Benjamin Hill. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. The blog is bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and the stories are up on the site at milb.com as well. And uh, favorite conspiracy theory? Before we get you out of here, Ben, what is it? Ooh, my favorite conspiracy theory. Um, that would have to be. I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, and this is maybe kind of a lame answer. But when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with the uh, the Loch Ness the Loch Ness monster. Okay. And uh, I don't know if it's conspiracy theory, or just you know something that can't be proven. But I've always been fascinated by that, and um, you know supernatural elements in general that uh, you know can maybe be disproven. But you know I, I like a lot of the early 20th century, like late 19th century, when like seances were a big thing, and uh, yeah. people were seeing spirits all the time, and uh, really trying to get in touch with the afterlife and the beyond. And, you know, women would suffer from like hysterics when the ghost showed up. And I don't mean that to be sexist. It just seemed all the accounts, you know, people would be passing out. Um, so I, I like the unexplainable and uh, things such as of that nature. But uh, I can't say I'm a big uh, conspiracy theory uh, follower uh, in the present day or in, in recent years. Uh, I try to stick to uh, the truth and that which can be proven, um, you know, as my exemplary journalism always illustrates. Well, you got to get to State College tonight then. They'll, they'll change it. Sam, you got one? Uh, I was just looking it up. I, I don't remember all of the details, but there's this guy who like showed up, they just dead on a beach in Australia. Yeah, and the Somerton man. The Somerton man. Oh, yeah. he's one of my favorites too. And he just had a a torn copy of a book and like all the labels ripped out of his clothing, and nobody can identify this guy anywhere, and nobody has any idea who he is. That's a good uh, one. fingerprints. All this kind of stuff has not brought back who he is. So, it, I. It, it's yeah it's right up there with db cooper for me that's a really good one i like it benjamin hill again on twitter he's at ben's biz blog is bensbiz.mlblogs.com conspiracy theory night is tonight in state college all good stuff from ben thanks ben thank you it was all good stuff from me and it's always great stuff from both of you guys uh tyler mon and sitting to my left sam dykster <laughs> i was gonna throw in there and or is it <laughs> yeah. but, Final segment of the show before the show podcast for this week's edition. Um, you want to know my favorite uh, conspiracy theories? I got a bunch of them. Yeah, we never I get to ask you yours. Um, yeah. The D.B. Cooper one is probably my favorite. Uh, one of them, which I believe was debunked, um, there was a ship 
back in, I think this was in the 1940s, um, which was called the SS Orang Madan. And I believe, again, I believe that this has been either proven or likely proven to have not occurred. But apparently started transmitting SOS messages that said things like, quote, all officers, including captain, are dead, lying in chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. And then one message after that that just said, I die. And that ship was then discovered by a uh, another ship. They went on board. Everybody on board that ship was dead. They all had terrified expressions on their faces, but it did not appear that there were any wounds or injuries on any of the bodies. But apparently this story has never been confirmed, although I guess it's never been, like, officially debunked, but that terrifies me. Um, what if there are just, like, ship-invading aliens out there that have been running amok since the late 1940s, and we don't have any idea how to stop them? Or maybe it came it from could the be. sea itself. It could be. We don't know. Um, also, I've spent way too many nights reading things about Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 still to this day. Like, that plane just vanished. It's been, like, four years. We still have no idea what happened to it. It blows my mind. Blows my mind. Um, also, there is a conspiracy yeah. theory out there that Lord, the pop singer, is actually, like, in her mid-40s. Okay. Well, <laughs> that that one, like, I'm, I'm not in on that one. That's know. a little weird. Yeah, because she's like straight up said like stop <laughs> trying to make me older than I am. And who, wasn't there? There was somebody else who. Uh, there was somebody who sued about that. It was she's from Pitch Perfect. What's her name? Oh, um, Anna Kendrick. Uh, what's her name? No. no, not Anna Kendrick. I, of course, Howie I know Anna Kendrick up top, man. No, uh, this is gonna annoy me. What's uh, Rebel oh, yeah, Wilson? Okay. Is that it? Rebel Wilson. Yeah, there. Some somebody had written a story. Yeah, Rebel Wilson. Uh, somebody had written a story that she that claimed she was like decades older huh. than she actually is, and that she's been lying, all this kind of stuff. So she sued for defamation. So let's get, let's not try hey, to I'm spread those rumors about that the Lord. I'm, sure I'm not, I'm not confirming yeah, they, nor denying. We're just saying we're not. No, we're not doing anything like that. We're just saying they're they're out there and I got keep nothing, your eyes peeled. I got no intelligence one way or the other, uh, either about that or <laughs> SS Orang Medan or actual intelligence. I don't have any of that either. I was going to say, let's not make that the slogan of this what? podcast. Tyler Mott, I have no, no intelligence. intelligence. People whatsoever. listening would be like, oh, yeah, we figured that out in season one of this show. Um, Sam, MILB.TV, this week, what are you watching? Um, yeah, so I got two games for everybody. Uh, Winston-Salem will be on MILB-TV, uh, I believe, through the weekend. Uh, if you want to, I would recommend Thursday's game against Salem. Uh, so that's a Winston-Salem-Salem matchup, which is pretty fun. Uh, but only because Dane Dunning... Is pitching. Uh, he's the number 14 prospect in that loaded White Sox system, as we said, would probably be much higher than most other systems. Uh, first round pick last year was absolutely dominant at the at Class A to begin the year. They've moved him up, not quite the same numbers, but he's still averaging more than a strikeout in inning and a 3.07 ERA. So he's always a fun watch uh, on the mound. And like we said, Eloy Jimenez is in that lineup. Zach Collins is in that lineup. Uh, lots to see from the dash in that game. Uh, and I'll also just add, uh, on Friday, Hudson Valley will be traveling to Staten Island. Um, that'll be a chance for everybody to watch Brendan McKay, especially if you're a Rays fan. If you're not a Rays fan, uh, you know him as one of the p two potential two-way stars um, in this year's draft, both he and Hunter Green. Uh, he's only played, uh, you know, he's only, he has yet to pitch this year. I don't think they want him to pitch this year. Um, but uh, watch that game because I'm going to try to go – 
to it myself. I won't be watching on MILB.TV. Uh, so maybe you'll get a chance to watch Brendan McKay, or maybe you'll be able to see me catch a, a foul ball in there somewhere. So uh, those are my two picks for MILB TV games this week. It's pretty uh, loaded slate, I would say. What I'm about gonna go for to the you, Pacific Tyler? Coast League for two. Um, by the time you listen to this and the weekend rolls around, there's a chance that this team has cooled. But as we record this on Wednesday, the Fresno Grizzlies over the last two days in Las Vegas have scored 41 runs on 41 hits. In two days, they scored 22 runs on Monday and 19 runs on Tuesday. That offense, uh, I talked to Daryl Robinson, their hitting coach, last night for a story that's up on the site. They're so loaded, one through nine. Tony Kemp is on a 23-game hitting streak now. Um, Derek Fisher continues to crush the ball over the place. They are an extremely talented offense, uh, so give them a watch. Also, my second half pick for a turnaround among top prospects has been uh, justifying the pick all second half. Tyler O'Neill of the Tacoma Rainiers has been crushing the ball all over the place. He, as of Wednesday, has homered in his last three games. Uh, he's got an OPS over 1,100 since late June, really crushing the ball. The Tacoma Rainiers return home from Albuquerque later this week. They will play Sacramento in a four-game set at home at Cheney Stadium in Tacoma coming up Friday through Monday on a wraparound series, as they call them. It's one of my favorite baseball terms, a wraparound weekend series. I don't know why. It's one of those things. Sam's leaving me hanging out to dry here. Because I've, you know what? I was talking into a dead microphone. That's why. I was just lavishing in. praise. I was like, oh, that's so smart of you, Tyler. That's You're such, such great, a but genius. Nobody's ever going to get to hear this it now. conversation. Yeah. Uh, wraparound series. It's a good one. Yes, I agree. That's right. The, the, that's uh, two minutes of my praise just boiled down to yes, I agree. Okay, that's going to do it. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.